When we were growing up, we were taught by our parents not to talk to strangers. And now you see with all these different types of scams that are affecting the elderly, I'm thinking the same thing, but it's reversed. We need to tell our parents or our grandparents not to talk to strangers. Introducing The Protectors, inside criminal minds from around the world. Presented by the IAFCI, leaders in safeguarding consumers from fraud and scams for more than 50 years. And now your hosts, International President Mike Carroll and International VP Mark Solomon. Hello, everybody. This is Mike Carroll, International President of the IAFCI. Welcome to IAFCI Presents The Protectors. I'm in Chicago. My co-host, Mark Solomon, is in Connecticut. Mark, how are you doing today? Mike, I'm doing all right. I decided to pick a fight with my driveway. I took a fall and got a couple of broken bones, but I'm doing all right, and the show must go on. So we're we'll excited. We'll that story. <laughs> That's right. So, hey, I want to welcome our guest. This is just a great podcast we have coming up. Our guest is Detective Ken Seeley. He is an 18-year veteran with the Aventura Police Department down in Florida, and he has such an incredible resume. He was the 2019 U.S. Attorney General Award recipient for fraud investigations. He has written over 200 fraud-related search warrants. He is an expert witness and has testified at trials uh, when it comes to street-level fraud and identity theft crimes. This guy's done it all. And Mike, I know you get a little background with him, but we want to welcome to the show Ken Seeley. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate you uh, giving me the chance to be here with you. Thanks, Ken. Hey, Mark, I got to let you know, I met Ken last year, back in October, down in Florida when they had their annual training conference, and his presentation just stuck out. And Ken, we invited you on today because your presentation was on grandparent scams or variations of them, but one that stuck out and you had a case on was the grandchild in trouble scam. And I'm just going to ask you if you could start out by explaining, you know, all the different types of scams against grandparents, the elderly. And uh, how does this grandchild in trouble scam work? No, definitely. So, unfortunately, you know, grandparents, our older individuals are a very vulnerable population. You know, they grew up in a time where there was not so much fraud and so much schemes. So they tend to be a lot more trusting. So what this scam particularly works off of as far as a grandchild scam, uh, it more relates to, you know, you're receiving a phone call telling you that, you know, your grandchild or uh, an extended family member is in legal trouble. You know, they were pulled over, they got arrested for narcotics or whatever the case may be, and that now, you know, they need assistance in bail money or money for an attorney. And, you know, they kind of play off the fact that they are facing a lot of time in jail and that this is, you know, it's important that they, you know, provide this money to help their loved one up. And um, Ken, is it true that sometimes they'll actually put a young person on the phone to start the conversation with the grandparents, so they use a young voice of a male or female, so to almost impersonate the grandchild? Oh, definitely. Um, what you would normally see is, you know, one up to sometimes three or four different actors. When I say actors, I mean really subjects that will be involved within the scheme to make the call. Part of it is to try to make it appear as realistic as possible. So sometimes you will get a phone call from the arresting officer, so to speak that individual then hand the phone off to who they believe is going to be, you know, their grandson or their nephew. And that individual normally try to disguise their voice in a way to make it sound like either they're really upset, they were crying, they have a cold, um, any of those different ways to try to assist and accounting for the, 
difference in the, the sound of voice. Then from there, they will often tell them, you know, you're going to get a phone call from my attorney, my court appointed attorney. Please make sure you answer the phone. You know, again, they'll sound like they're crying that that is desperation meant to, to pull at the heartstrings of the victim. And then shortly thereafter, they'll get a phone call from another person claiming to be the attorney. Um, and then we've had, you know, several instances where they'll then loop you into a secretary or an assistant because, you know, a, a female voice becomes more soothing to the victim. And, you know, now again, it's, it's playing to the, the mental idea of an attorney would have a secretary and the secretary would have this nice soothing voice. And in my time of, you know, of need as I'm, I'm scared and I'm anxious, this voice is calming me down and walking me through the steps. So I feel like I can trust that individual. So it's, it's very much of a well thought out complex scheme from the beginning as they're moving through it to get you on the hook. Hey, Ken, on some of the interviews for the elderly, they'll say, uh, the, the fraudster will say, Grandma, this is your favorite grandson. Who, Johnny? Yes, it's Johnny. So they don't really know the grandson's name, but they have the grandparent or the elderly person provide it, and that's how they participate in the scheme and are able to get more information and, and take them for their money. Oh, no, that is definitely true. What we undercut a lot of the times is the, the power of social engineering. You know, and, and social engineering has become such a large part of fraud as a whole, but especially in grandparent schemes. You know, as I had mentioned earlier, you know, most grandparents and most of our elderly individuals, they're very trusting. You know, they're, they're not looking for a world of scams and schemes. So, yes, these individuals will call and they'll make those kind of, you know, off-cuff statements of, oh, it's your favorite grandchild or, Hey, you know, try to make her feel bad, but I can't believe you don't remember my voice. You don't recognize my voice, um, you know, until they get a name. And then once they get the name, then they're going to build on that in order to, you know, capitalize on their intended target in their scheme. Kenny, you know, when you're talking about this scam and all the different frauds that are out there, if I had to classify this fraud, this is sort of like the Broadway production of fraud because you have different actors playing different roles, changing voices, getting information from the victim, soliciting information. So to me, this is the, the Broadway production of fraud, I think, you know, when you when you talk about this type of scam. Oh, definitely. And like I said, look, this, this is a scam where there's a lot of money to be made for the fraudsters. So they definitely have taken the time and they have perfected this craft because this, this is not new, but they're starting to evolve and they're becoming, again, like you said, better actors. You know, it's the screenplay and they're, they're rewriting the screenplay every year to make sure it's better. I know on this uh grandchild in trouble scam there's various ways that they get the money to these fraudsters one is they'll just leave the money in the mailbox and the police officer purported police officer or fraudster actually will come and pick it up or some i've seen in the past where they have instruct them to go out and buy gift cards and then read the numbers off on the back of the cards and the money goes from that card to the fraudsters card but can can i ask you i know you had a successful investigation down in florida can you talk about that case and how were the elderly being victimized no, definitely. So our our case, again, was the, the classic phone call to a victim who happened to be 91 years old. Uh, he was told that his 14-year-old grandson, you know, had been arrested, was in a, a rear-end crash, and had taken someone's car and was driving intoxicated and then crashed into a diplomat's car. And that part of the story is important because then the fraudster was able to explain to the victim, 
you can't tell anyone because a judge put a gag order because it's a diplomat involved. So they then instructed the grandfather to go to the bank, you know, withdraw, uh, that was about $12,000 in cash, and then to wire that money to a bank account. And they provided him the information. So once he sent that money out, you know, they would then call him back and they kept him on the hook, so to speak, where he would keep getting phone calls from his 14-year-old grandson. And then any time he would question, uh, you know, you don't really sound like you're 14, they would disconnect the call and wait a little bit and then call him back. And then they make the victim sound, or sorry, the grandson sound like he's upset and he's crying to account for the difference in voice. And basically they kept feeding this victim story after story after story to give themselves enough time to get all the money out of the bank account that the money was wired to so the victim couldn't freeze the account or recall the money. So that, that was how it initiated for us, but that occurred out in California. So the agency out in California sent the report over to us after they discovered that the account that received it was in our city. So once we got the report from California, we began to work it up. Um, you know, we were able, lucky enough to identify the owner of that account, who was, you know, in this case, a 20-year-old male that resided in our city. We were able to go through the bank account, the transaction data, identify a second male who had received the majority of the money once it hit the account. And through the investigation, we had discovered or developed enough probable cause to be able to do two separate search warrants on the residence of those two individuals. Wow. Ken, quick question. Uh, when you talked about this money being wired from the victim's bank account to somebody else's bank account, is that the preferred method a lot of times for these scams? And also, how quickly does that money become available once it's wired? So as far as the preferred method, uh, we're actually seeing, I guess you see two methods most right now, one being the wire method, and then the second being the having someone actually physically go pick up the money. Uh, as far as the, the wire method, that normally requires recruiting multiple mules, individuals who own accounts, so that they can receive the money into the accounts, because it puts a buffer between your, your main target and the actual receiver of the funds. But once the money hits the account, it's available immediately because it's, it's a domestic wire. So if the victim sends it right now at, you know, 7.37 p.m., at 7.38 p.m., it's ready in, in our, our subject's account for withdrawal. And how soon was it from when the money was wired by your victim until they reported it? So the victim ended up making the report on the third day of the actual scam, and that's after... Uh, the subject stopped calling him to give him updates related to the grandson's court hearing and bond hearing process. At that time is when he got a little suspicious and then ended up calling his son and discovered that his grandson was perfectly fine and at home. Wow. Well, Ken, when you looked at the bank account, did you find other victims? So what we ended up discovering, and uh, not also the, the first subject, but once we had identified the second subject and we started running, you know, a deeper investigation on him uh, is when we started realizing that looking at his account transactions, he was actually receiving Zelle cash app money transfers at a extremely high pace, uh, almost maxed out on a daily basis from multiple individuals. So what we ended up doing was we ended up tracking back those Zelle and cash app transfers. And 
within tracking those back, we realized that every one of them were between the ages of 18 and 22. And when we started digging into, you know, their financials and their accounts, we then realized that every single one of them were receiving these large incoming wire transfers from all over the United States with no, no directly clear purpose uh, behind the wire transfers. So you're saying that your ringleader was recruiting other individuals to accept funds from victims of fraud, kind of like money mules, and then they would take that money and send it via Zelle or Vemo to the to the main guy that are ringleader. Right. So in this instance, what we ended up discovering was once the money would hit the mules account, they would go into the bank and they would try to withdraw large chunks of the cash as a way of trying to get the money out of the account as quickly as possible. So if the victim reports it, the money doesn't get frozen in the account. Uh, once they were successful at withdrawing the most of it via the cash, they would then use Cash App, Zelle, or Venmo and transfer the remaining $2,000, $3,000 in the account out to, the, in this case, the main recruiter who is facilitating everything. So, Ken, what I really, what I'm impressed about this investigation, there's a lot of people that think that these grandparent scams are being done by people overseas and, and countries far away. But in your case, it sounds like you had suspects on the ground in your community that were committing this fraud. Yes, we were able to identify a total of six subjects, five of them being mules and one being the recruiter. Uh, for the scheme. And again, you know, and this was a group mostly between the ages of 18 and 22. Wow. Hey, Ken, let me ask you this. How did these fraudsters reach out to these victims? Was this a cold call or how, they get some kind of sucker list? But how did they find victims from all over the country? So information received from one of the individuals indicate that they may have purchased um, lists from the dark web. But Contradictory information also indicates that they may, you know, have been straight cold calls. One thing we we have definitively determined within the investigation is that there are other levels to this organization and to this group. So that that is something that you know we've we've continued to look into because, as you said earlier, like these these are extremely important cases. You know, we somebody has to protect our vulnerable population, and you know we want to make sure we put in the work to try to get to that point. And Ken, from your experience, how many of these are organized groups or even, you know, one of the trends that I saw when I was in law enforcement before I retired, we actually had a case where it was uh, gang members that were involved in this. And actually, you know, we arrested one of the gang members who actually was picking up the box delivered with cash from the grandparent scam. And, and a month later, he was shot and killed, you know, uh, and his body was dumped in New York. So are you seeing that trend, too, in Florida or other areas that these might be associated with gang activity? Definitely. I think to a certain degree, and I don't want to say speak to nationwide because obviously, you know, I'm, I'm more localized here. But I do speak with other individuals and friends of mine from agencies across the country. And there is a, a definite significant shift of gangs get into the fraud realm. As I said you know, earlier, fraud is unfortunately a very lucrative business. And the case that we investigated, you know, again, you're talking about 18 to 22 year olds that ran this scam for just under a year, and they made almost half a million dollars off of victims wow. in this case. And the majority of that was cash. So they were able to liquidate it very quickly and, you know, without any quote unquote overhead. So gangs have realized you know, the the profitability 
of working and doing fraud related crimes and grandparent schemes to be one of them. Because, you know, again, they'll, they'll call them up, tell them to put it in a mailbox. They'll come by with a rental car that's rented under someone else's name. So even if you get a tag, it doesn't trace back to them directly or it's rented itself through fraud and ID theft. And then they'll, you know, they'll pick up the cash or they'll have you go wire the money at a Western Union to a fictitious name. And then they'll walk into the Western Union, thanks, you know, to the whole COVID mask with their face covered up and they'll use a counterfeit ID to take possession of it. So they become wise enough to know how to put in different layers to make it harder for law enforcement to identify and attract them. So, you know, it's, it's very profitable to them. They can make money at a very quick pace. And unfortunately, a lot of our victims, you know, they get embarrassed. They get embarrassed that they were conned, that, that, that they were tricked. So they won't file a report. Uh, they don't want to tell their relatives, you know, or if they do file a report, I've had victims say, I don't want to go to court. You know, be it, I don't want to deal with it. I'm too old for that. Or I don't want to put on display that, you know, I made that mistake and that I was that gullible. Yeah, Ken, you're right. And even not reporting it or not telling other family members that they're a victim of a scam because they're too embarrassed. You're absolutely right. Hey, Ken, can I ask you, um, to date, what would be the loss to the victims in this scam? What's the total amount of fraud loss to the victims? From the scam that we worked, again, it was it was just under $500,000. You know, so one of our victims in specific, they had lost over 140000 within this scam. And Ken, you, I, I know you pointed out something here. You said that the victim, uh, the grandparent, didn't reach out until three days later and, and called the father of the grandchild. Did the fraudster somehow get the victim not to call into the father to check in on the grandson or to even call the grandson to see if they were home and not in trouble and arrested somewhere else? I mean, does the fraudster say something to the victim to get them not to call the parent or call the grandchild directly? Yeah, so typically the attorney, so to speak, um, that is calling or the individual, you know, pretending to be the attorney, uh, will normally indicate that, you know, there is a gag order and, you know, he'll indicate some reason, either, you know, the car that was crashed into had a juvenile or the car that was crashed into had a diplomat, something to, to make that sound a little bit more believable and then tell them that, you know, there is a gag order in place and that they can't talk about it. And if they are found talking about it, then, you know, they can face criminal charges. We've even had some quote unquote attorneys go to the point of telling them, you know, your phone will be tapped because this is a federal investigation because of the drug amount. And wow. that if you're heard on the phone calling anyone or mentioning the case, then, you know, an arrest warrant will be issued for you, you know, thus scaring the victim from trying to make contact and verify the story in any way. Hey, Ken, you mentioned the elderly not wanting to testify, but what other difficulties does law enforcement face in these type of investigations? I think one of the largest parts of the difficulty is that they're not necessarily localized. So as I said, like this scam, it started out in California, you know, so California then has to reach all the way out to Florida and get an agency that's going to be able to continue to follow up and investigate it. That's, you know, obviously depending on the agency's priority, the agency size, you know, what they have going on at that moment in time as to whether or not they can even follow up on it. You know, on top of that, these cases are typically worked in a very proactive manner. I'm sorry, a, a reactive as opposed to a proactive manner. 
So a lot of times, by the time the scam is discovered, the money is already sent, the money is already delivered, the money is already picked up by a subject. So you know you're you're trying to find the crumbs that will give you a lead. And as I said, this has been going on for years. So these guys have rewritten their scripts and they have studied, which a lot of us don't realize that our targets and our subjects, they study prior cases. They learn how others got caught and they try not to make the same mistake twice. So thus, every time we make an arrest, it becomes a little bit harder for us to make the next arrest because your next target is a little bit more educated on the steps that we're going to take. Yeah, and it seems like that jurisdiction, you know, issue, or at least committing portions of the crime at different jurisdictions, taxes law enforcement a lot. You are currently, I believe, a task force officer uh, on a federal task force. So, how important is it for these federal agencies to be able to get involved in these type of scams and prosecute them? I, I'll tell you. So, yes, I'm I'm a task force officer with the United States Secret Service. I've been with them since 2019. Before that, I was on with an IRS group. And having that ability is invaluable. So the, the ability to pick up and follow the case, no matter where it goes in the United States, is definitely a plus for us. What I've recommended to a lot of other agencies that I've dealt with from other states that are working these kind of cases, even if you're not part of a federal task force, you know, link up with your state investigative agency. So like for us, it's FDLE, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Their agents obviously have the ability to investigate throughout the entire state, issue subpoenas, work on tracking things down. So that that statewide jurisdiction can definitely help you, especially in the event that it's just like for us, I'll have targets in the north end of the state. I'm always on the south side of the state. So that will assist me in, in pulling that data in and then getting everything together to just drive up there to do search warrants or arrest warrants with the agencies up there. But networking and communication it's a challenge whether we like it or not, but it is definitely what provides us the ability to cripple these networks, to actually get in and start to dismantle and make a case is through networking and communicating with one another. And again, a lot of agencies, they're, they're not necessarily that keen on taking a case that started somewhere else, but in cases like these grandparent scams and these fraud cases, You know, as long as you take the time, you look at it, you might be surprised that you'll catch a really good lead and work it. Ken, I wanted to talk to you about preventive measures, and I think you covered a couple right away regarding this type of scam. Networking and communication with other agencies is very helpful. And you did the number one. You arrested the people that were involved in the scam and put them in jail. That's a great preventive measure. Put the bad people away. But what about for, like, the grandparents or the elderly Do you have any tips that we could give to our listeners? I got one that I've learned from uh, talking to some of the investigators here in our offices. Have a code name, like for a grandson, have a nickname or something, only that them two know, the grandparent and the grandchild know that nobody else would know, something like that. But do you have any other preventive measures for the elderly regarding these types of schemes? Honestly, prevention comes with education and familiarization. What people do not realize a lot of times is, you know, we always try to figure out how they identified, you know, the victim, how they targeted this specific victim. Um, And there's a lot of ways. So, you know, you have social media in this world, in this age, we put a lot of our personal information on social media. 
we put pictures of our relatives and their names and we, we, you know, link to them. But a lot of our elderly individuals, they don't private their account. They don't lock the account. So anyone who wants to just surf the internet and can randomly pick you, you know, a lot of your information is out on the web. So if I have your name and I have the city you live in, there's a good chance I can figure out through the internet, your phone number. Uh, and then at that point, it's a cold call to reach out to you. You know, if your, your grandson is tagging you that he's traveling and he's overseas, I know he's gone. I know he's overseas. I know it's harder for you to get in contact with him. And it's going to be more believable when I call you and tell you that he was arrested in Spain at the airport uh, for drug trafficking. You know, so all of these things are realistic. So what I would say is for children to sit down with, you know, their moms and their dads, especially if, you know, they're elderly and make sure, you know, look over their Facebook accounts, make sure it's locked, it's private, not all needs to see it. You know, be careful what information they choose to just give out over the phone. Be careful what links you're clicking on, be it on your cell phone or, you know, be it in your emails. Because what happens a lot that we do see is you might Google, let's say, Cash App, you know, because you have a problem sending money. And Google will pop up with the first three or four links on top of your browser. But right next to it, it says AD, which indicates that it's an ad. It's not an actual link to Cash App. Well, you'll click on that link and it'll look like it's a Cash App website because it's a clone site. And when you click on customer service, now you're getting, you know, a form popping up for you to fill out the form. Well, people will fill out the form, put in their contact information, emails and everything else. Uh, you don't know where that form is going. That form at, at times goes to subjects like this or individuals that's going to sell it on the dark web for your information. And it's a, it's a vicious cycle. So definitely code words are, you know, are a great idea, but education, educating individuals and not walking away from your common sense. If someone's calling you and telling you that, you know, your grandson's arrested, you need to pay bail money, go to Target and buy $5,000 in gift cards, just stop for a minute. You know, stop for a minute and really think about it. What law enforcement agency or what attorney's office is going to want $5,000 in, in Target gift cards? You know, you'll get someone calling you telling you they're from the IRS and you owe taxes. Well, when has the IRS asked you to pay your taxes and Best Buy debit on gift cards? So it's, it's a little bit of common sense, you know, it's a little bit of education, you know, within the mix to hopefully get it to that point. And no one from law enforcement is ever going to tell you that someone was arrested and that you can't say anything to anybody because they're tapping your phone and they'll come and arrest you. You know, these are things that are red flags. And, and at that point, you need to immediately call your family member, make sure they're okay, and then call law enforcement you know, before you send out any money. Yeah, Ken, that's a great point. You know, it seems like the fraudsters are trying to put that victim under duress and give them no other option other than to follow their direction. So I'm glad you pointed out that it's not illegal to call your son or your grandson and inquire, are they really in another country or did they get arrested? You know, because I think if your victim had reached out to the father right away, he would have known that, you know, the son was not in trouble. So I'm glad you brought that out, that, you know, law enforcement can't prevent you from calling another family member to, to make sure they're okay. No, definitely. It's always urgency because they don't want you to think and they don't want you to contact another family member to see if this is legit or not. They want you to move as quick as possible. 
No, definitely. And, that, and that's, the, that's the name of the game. You know, the faster I can get you to move, the quicker I can get you to give me the money. The quicker I get you to give me the money, the quicker I can dump the money. And, you know, I can get all this done before you realize or before you happen to talk to someone and make them think that, you know, something's up. Like I have a case that we're working right now where I unfortunately have a victim who still doesn't want to believe she's a victim. You know, right. she sent $7,000 in the mail. And, you know, we've, we've spoke with her and she insists that she was sending it to a former coworker who needed help. And that's it. You know, and we've, we've talked to her several times. She just happens to be in a completely different end of the state, but she does not believe she's a victim yet. Hmm. Again, when you talk about networking and communication, that's why Mark and I are very passionate about the IAFCI. That's what we love about our organization, the networking that is out there, communicating with other members. Hey, I got the same scam in California. We have an alert system. I, I tell you, daily we see alerts relating to these types of scams that you talked about tonight. Yeah, and to add on to that, I'll tell you, I have been a member of the IFCI for coming up on just over five years. I have definitely found roads and, and never-ending usefulness within you know IFCI, the contacts that it provides you. I've been able to reach out to people through the contact list that's on the website, and I've gotten immediate help. I let them know where I got their information from, and you know, be it banks, law enforcement, whatever the case may be. So IAFCI has been a very valuable resource for us, you know, in working not just grandparent scans, but all fraud investigations that we handle. And Ken, uh, Mike said that he, he went down to Florida and saw you speak before you got to meet Mike in person. And I'm coming up with this great idea because, you know, maybe we could use Mike as an elderly grandparent you know, to play an undercover role. He looks like he's 90 years old, so we might be able to, you know, role reversal and get some of these fraudsters. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Okie dokie. I don't don't know if he's going to want to leave Chicago, though, to come down here to sunny Florida. You know, I know know how much he, uh, you know, really likes that cold weather up there. Yeah, well, another month and we'll be in the 40s here. (laughs) Sorry, I always got to throw in a zinger at Mike, you know. One per show. <laughs> you know, I was going to bring up, and I find this kind of odd, and, and it kind of what something Ken said earlier. You know, when when we were growing up, we were we were taught by our parents not to talk to strangers. And now you see with all these different types of scams that are affecting the elderly or they're trying, you know, scam them. I'm thinking the same thing, but it's reverse. We need to tell our parents or our grandparents not to talk to strangers because a lot of these frauds start on a phone call. And it just, it's unbelievable. Extremely true. You know, and, and, and the reality is, like I said before, there's, there's so many different facets. You know, and what we, what we don't realize, and which is why I say education is the key, you know, don't know this grandparent scam. We all know about the phone call and, you know, if relative arrested. But they're getting targeted in cryptocurrencies now. A lot of older individuals have now invested in crypto. And they have the crypto wallets. Now, individuals are starting to target them to gain remote access to their computers and through email links and things to that effect and, you know, taking over their crypto accounts. And unfortunately, because they're not well versed in the new technologies and and how to do certain things, by the time they figure out how to get back into that crypto or by the time they contact law enforcement, it's all gone. And for some people, again, that's a significant amount of their savings. 
So it's unfortunately that the scams are, are far and wide now between grandparent scams, crypto, you know, spoofing, where they basically call you or send you a text as a fair to your bank and trying to verify fraud transactions. And then again, use social engineering on the phone when they call you to make you think it's your bank and have you give up, you know, your account information. These scams are growing. They're becoming a lot more prevalent. And we have to get the word out to our senior population about it. Yeah. And like you said, they're getting more high tech. Uh, I heard of a case recently where the victim actually withdrew the money from the bank and then uh, was instructed to go down to a Bitcoin ATM machine and deposit the money and transfer it to the fraudster. So it's amazing all the different schemes that are going out and how sophisticated it could get. I was just going to throw in there, you know, you mentioned the word sophistication. But, you know, again, I, I preface that with Sophistication isn't based upon age. Some of these are really young actors, 18, 19, 20 years old, that yeah. oppose these schemes off. Yeah. Well, after talking to Ken about the crypto side of it, it sounds like we're going to have to have a part two. We'll have to bring Ken back. Yeah, absolutely. Ken, this was great. I mean, really uh, gave our audience something to think about and hopefully, you know, either they could prevent becoming a victim or if they maybe realize now they were victimized or in the process of being victimized, they could reach out to law enforcement. And it sounds like the quicker a victim reacts and reaches out to law enforcement, the better chances of success in that investigation. Is that correct? That is definitely true. You know, the, the quicker you reach out, the more fresh that trail is. And, you know, the, the higher the likelihood that we'll be able to get, you know, some good evidence to actually work towards a resolution. Yeah, Ken, like I said earlier, I saw your presentation down in uh, Florida, and it was outstanding. And I just saw the passion when you were up there talking about this type of scam and putting people away, putting them behind bars. And uh, I just want to thank you for all you do to protect our elderly and to protect our citizens. You do a great job, and we really, really appreciate it, and we appreciate you coming on today. All right. Thank you guys very much for having me. And again, it's it's an honor. It's a privilege to serve the community and to do everything we can to look out for you know our vulnerable populations, our elderly, and try to make sure that those who would prey on them definitely suffer the consequence and serve their time in jail. And Ken, uh, be safe out there from all of us here uh, from the IFCI Presents podcast. Thank you for what you're doing. And hey, we're going to be coming down to see you in a couple of years for the international conference. That's right. It's going to be held in Florida and Tampa. So we're yes. looking forward to that. Uh, definitely. And I look forward to seeing you guys in Maryland. I'll be up there this year as well. So. Awesome. We'll see you then. Thanks, Ken. Mark's buying. Thank you, guys. Take care. <laughs> all right, Ken. Wow, Mike, what a, what a great episode. And man, what a crime fighter Ken is. Uh, you know, thank God we got him out there on the front lines fighting these frauds. So what I love is the ability to take a scam or a fraud and then hear from an expert and actually give us a case that they physically worked where there's real victims, real offenders. And, you know, in this case, justice was served. So that, that's great. Yeah, and it's not an easy case you know, to work. I mean, you got uh, financial fraud is, uh, they're tough cases, you know, especially when the victims are out of state, you got to try to follow the money. Now you got the P2P payments, the, the Venmo and Zelle, and you got to follow the money, but he did an excellent job on this case. It was very, very good. Yeah. You got to love the tenacity, you know, not giving up and, and following the leads and, and wow, arresting six people. I mean, they're identifying six people and arresting these fraudsters for their involvement. That's great. Yeah, hey, Mark, you know, I wanted to mention, you know, the IFCI, we have their various industry groups, and our group put together a stop action video, one-minute video, 
And Modified Media, our company that produces the podcast, helped us out with it. It's just a one-minute video for store clerks. And when somebody comes in there to buy three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 in gift cards, and they come up to the counter, there's questions that the cashier can ask that person. Said, hey, why are you buying such a big amount of gift cards? Is it because somebody's in trouble or lottery or IRS or Social Security called you? Try to stop that sale. Get the store manager involved. So we're going to put that out on our show notes, and we're going to try to get it out to as many retail stores as we can. Because that's a big part of the scam is once they buy the gift cards, they walk out the door, the fraudster will make them read the numbers off the back of the card. And like we were talking earlier with Ken, once they do that, the money is gone. So the victim could be in Florida, and the fraudster could be in Buffalo, New York, and they're there making a fraudulent purchase because the numbers were read off to their card. One of my favorite chiefs of police here in Connecticut used to always say the easiest case, a fraud case to solve is the one that never happened. And, you know, if we could prevent it from that store clerk stopping that action from happening, man, that's great. And that's what it's all about. So, and I heard there's a great commentator in that stop action video, Mike. Yeah, there's a good voiceover. All right. All right. We'll see. And one more thing, Mark, I know for listeners out there, you visit your mom or your grandma, you know, when you're there, just take a look around. If you see a lot of mail, if you see a lot of Western Union receipts, if you see phone bills, uh, you know, there's a possibility they might be caught up in some type of scam, whether grandchild or lottery or sweepstakes or social security. Notes. So just keep an eye on, on your parents and grandparents. Yeah, it's always a great idea to keep an eye on our loved ones. And as we get older, it's even more important just to make sure that everything is okay and they're not being defrauded. So keep in contact with your elders and and your family members. And uh, I also want to give one more plug to Ken, too. I forgot to mention while he was on, he does training in the community with businesses and law enforcement down in Florida. So we'll put it in the show notes. But if anybody's interested, his company is called Syflet LLC. And you could go to info at syflet.com to inquire more information about the training and education he does. He's a, he's a true warrior, so we're glad he's uh, on our side. That's awesome. All right, Mike. Well, it's time to sign off uh, another great podcast. Let's thank our audience for tuning in once again to IFCI Presents The Protectors. And uh, from Mark Solomon here in Connecticut, I'm signing off. And this is Mike Carroll from Chicago. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Remember, as you join the fight to protect our citizens, you're not alone. With more than 6,500 members from around the world, the men and women of the IAFCI are standing together with you. To learn more or to join the IAFCI, please visit our website at www.iafci.org. The Protectors Podcast is produced by Modified Media and is available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. The hosts and guests' opinions are their own and do not reflect those of management, employers, or sponsors. Listeners are encouraged to contact law enforcement if they suspect being a victim of a crime.